Salam guys, I'm Mohsin. Welcome to this episode of Millionaire Muslim. Before we get into this episode, we just wanted to spend a few seconds telling you about Islamic Finance Guru or IFG for short. Mohsin and I co-founded IFG in 2015 because we couldn't find content about personal finance and Islamic finance for Muslims like you and I. Nowadays, alhamdulillah, we reach an audience of hundreds of thousands and our goal is to keep providing great content to help you guys. So if you're looking for halal investments and Islamic mortgages or startup funding, check us out at islamicfinanceguru.com. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can get me on mohsin at islamicfinanceguru.com and you can get Ibrahim on ibrahim at islamicfinanceguru.com. Enjoy the episode. Looking for a different approach to money? Meet Gatehouse Bank a Sharia-compliant UK bank built for the modern world. We help home buyers to purchase or refinance their home, provide buy-to-let funding for landlords, and offer award-winning savings accounts. Wherever you're going, get there a different way. Get there with Gatehouse. To find out more, visit gatehousebank.com. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Millionaire Muslim podcast. I have with me two guests from two different sides of the globe. We've got Maru from Toronto, is it, or Canada? And we've got Nadir all the way from Australia. And you're both working on the same project, which is the remarkable thing. Firstly, welcome to both of you. I'm really looking forward to hearing what you're working on and hear all about you. Welcome both. Thanks for having us, Ibrahim. Nice meeting you. Hey, thank you, brother. Ibrahim, it's been an honor to be here. Looking forward to our conversation today. No, Jazakallah for making the time. Maybe if I start with Brother Nadir. Firstly, you've got a very interesting name, which suggests to me that there's an interesting story behind it. And <laughs> to listeners, Nadir's name, as it appears on the screen that I'm seeing it, is Nadir Bek Sultanov. So I want to hear your story, Nadir, because you're in Australia and Australians generally don't have this name. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the ending there, that surname Sultanov might suggest where we're coming from. So that of is usually you get it in the Russian surnames. Originally, I'm from Uzbekistan and I'm born and raised in Uzbekistan. Alhamdulillah, the land of Imam al-Bukhari. That's probably the easiest way to know where Uzbekistan is. Alhamdulillah. So I was fortunate enough to go to Denmark when I was 20 years old to study. And I've studied like in Denmark and Sweden for around four or five years before coming to Australia in 2008. So since then, 12 years, I've been here in this beautiful down under, as they say it, in Australia. <laughs> Whereabouts are you in Australia? I live in Melbourne, in Australia. Nice. And you've clearly lived there long enough to have picked up a little bit of the accent. Yeah, um, you know, you have to really integrate and you have to acquire that. Otherwise, again, you know, you're not going to be one of the strangers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And so what led you to, actually, maybe we'll come to that in a second. I'd love to hear a bit more about you, Maru, if you're different side of the globe. That's right. Yeah. So my story is something similar to another's, actually crossed path at some point. I'm also from Uzbekistan. I usually sometimes people say, is it Pakistan or Uzbekistan? We say, yeah, it's Uzbekistan. It's a different country. So this is where we come from. Nadir comes from the northern part of the country. I come from the southern part of the country. But we never knew each other when we were in Uzbekistan. However, we met each other when we were in Denmark. You see, he came to study. also came there to study. And Alhamdulillah. So that's where we met each other. And he lived there for a while. Then he left us for Australia. 
I stayed there in Denmark for another 17 years. Up until recently, actually, like before the COVID shutdown in March, and then I relocated to Canada with my family. Fascinating. So what was it that caused you to shift Maruf to Canada? Because like 17 years in Denmark is a long time. It is a long time. That's right. To put it simply, there are many reasons, but I think the mainly for me was that what I personally felt as a Muslim, especially in Europe, this increasing Islamophobia in general. And I didn't want my kids to be raised in that environment. Even though the living standards were good, this and that, but these things really kind of um, wear on you. And that's why we've chosen Canada and we are happy. Actually, as a good weather, people are nice and they're welcoming. So it's very good. I'm happy. I'm happy. Alhamdulillah. I know that Europe is generally more hostile to Muslims than, let's say, the UK. I mean, the UK still has its problems and we still struggle with various things, but I think worse places exist in Europe. What I would like to understand is how has Canada been compared to that? And I know it's probably a little bit early for you to say, and COVID means that you've probably not experienced it fully, but did you visit Canada before, before you made the jump? That's a good question. So yeah, before we came here, like two years ago, we came for the some kind of convention for two weeks. So of course, two weeks is not a good time, like it's not long enough. But when we were here, we saw the people in general, how open they were. And besides, I have also some friends from Uzbekistan, they're also some Muslim friends, and they've been telling us about the health situation here. And since we came here, of course, you're right, we didn't see full, you have to see the full Canada yet, but we still we see the ongoing support. So one thing I can say about Canada for sure is that Canada, a while ago, they actually embraced diversity, this openness fully. So no matter where you come from, if you're in Canada, you're a Canadian, it doesn't matter where you come from. Actually, no one is that curious where you're from, right? As long as you are a low-abiding citizen, they're okay. And you can see that in the prime minister, right? He's coming on and being very supportive and celebrating and everything. So you can see from the top to the other politicians, other things, you see this acceptance in a different way. I can feel that at least. Yeah, no, I hear you. And like Canada, I think, has a great reputation globally as well for that aspect, like the diversity and the openness and tolerance aspect. I think the UK is interesting because it also has all sorts of people here. And the prime ministers also give the e-tweeting stuff. But I think the British have a reputation, probably rightly so, of there being a kind of like underlying racism potentially that there might exist. And I think that hasn't fully gone away just yet. But yeah, probably not as tolerant as Canada, but I think we're probably more tolerant definitely than somewhere like Denmark or Austria or somewhere like that. We may not know that, but we all three are two different countries. We have something in common, which is Commonwealth, right? We're all yeah. Commonwealth yeah. countries. I would like to know Nadir's opinion, like how is Australia in that regard? For Muslims. Yeah, for sure. And now that actually before that, I wanted to come back to you about why you shifted to Australia, because I can understand Maru's journey where Uzbekistan to study Denmark, stayed there for a while, then went to Canada. And then you took a left turn. You went from Denmark to Australia, (laughs) which is fascinating. I'd love to hear more. Sure, not a problem. I actually came first here in 2008. Um, I was studying in Sweden. And I had an internship to do and I had to choose a country. So I said to myself, look, since I'm living in a cold country with an extended winter where you don't see a sun for four or five months, I said, look, why not 
to visit a country which is sunny and just experience the warmer climate. And then it turned out Australia, I mean, I don't know how, but I ended up getting an internship in one of the companies in Australia in Melbourne. That's how it is. I took the flight 22 hours from Copenhagen to here, obviously with a stopover in Bangkok. And I landed in Melbourne and straight away I can feel it's a different country, different vibe altogether. Look, I came in end of October. The summer was kicking in here, which is still difficult for me to get used to because I know I've been taught the summer months, June, July and August, and I still can't comprehend or accept that it is winter in here. Anyways, look, the first thing that caught my attention was the climate, the sunny weather and open space and very friendly people, very easygoing, very relaxed. Obviously, the accent, the Australian accent, I really loved it, to be honest. (laughs) So, and yeah, I mean, look, it's the opposite of Denmark, I would say. I mean, in terms of the weather, (laughs) Denmark, again, it's very cold and I didn't like it, the fact that it goes for five, six months. I mean, around from October till April, I don't know. It's just very gloomy, short days where you pray for praise in like probably in four hours and yeah, that's yeah. it. <laughs> After that, it's just complete darkness. No, I, I know what you mean. I mean, it's not as bad here in the UK, but it's pretty, these days, you know, it, from anywhere from like one to about four, three hours, essentially, you've got four salat. So... Nadir, what I'd like to hear about is, A, we've not really talked about what you do, so I'd love to hear what took you to Australia. Are you still doing that now? And also what the Aussie kind of Muslim community is like as well. Is there one? Yeah, definitely there is. Probably I'll start with the first question. What I do, actually, I've studied business administration. I've got my master's degree, bachelor's and master's in both in business administration, and I've been working in this field for quite a bit, even after coming to here. But on the side, I always had passion towards teaching. I was teaching Quran on Saturdays and Sundays in Saturday schools and madrasas, the mosques. So I've been involved with this education. But anyways, so I came here, I continued doing that for some time till I made a shift after four or five years. My passion, basically, I would say, overtook my professional field. So basically, I switched to teaching. I'm a qualified now, an Australian qualified teacher now. I teach at school. Alhamdulillah, I've been teaching for now for five years. Alhamdulillah. If you come to the question, how is the Australian Muslim community or Muslim Australian community? I would say it's one of the best. I haven't been to UK. I lived in Denmark. I had the chance to go to. I've got very close friends in the UK. I get to hear from them a lot. But I would say to them, look, Australia is definitely is more relaxed here. I know there's a lot of Muslims in the UK, but Australian Muslims are... I would say very welcoming. It's a big community in here. They're very relaxed, easygoing. I found it like, especially if you compare it with the Europe, where you know, with Denmark, especially, I found it here is the life is very relaxed. Aussies are very easygoing. They take their time. They're not rushing. So the life is so good in here. Like you're gonna enjoy it. So the same yeah. the Muslim community. Alhamdulillah, they're very welcoming. We've got mosques all around, especially in Melbourne. I live in the north. You know, where we've got a lot of mosques in here, a lot of centers. And the brothers are, mashallah, there's a big Lebanese community, the Turkish community, and who go, you know, the Lebanese especially community, the brothers are very much into fishing, into hunting, and they have got their farms in the outskirts of Melbourne. And you know, the life is very much like that. It's a very healthy lifestyle, not yeah, very much yeah. jam-packed inside the city. That sounds really good. And there's a few things I wanted to pick up on. One was that you kind of touched on it. It sounds like there's a big Lebanese and Turkish community. What other big nationalities do you have out there? 
I didn't realize that you could do hunting. I didn't realize that guns were legal, or is it you have to like have a particular license as a farmer or something? Yeah, uh, so you need a license to yeah to get the guns and go. And there's seasons you go after ducks, or after these, or even you can go after horses. <laughs> there are wild horses in uh, the Brumbies. But again, not everybody would do it. But probably it's in our culture, in Uzbek culture, we eat horse meat as a delicacy. Yeah, yeah. yeah so some of our brothers, some our Uzbek Uyghur brothers, they go for after horses and. They hunt and they basically make that special sausage. Right. <laughs> Nothing. And so what communities out there is it mainly, are you saying Lebanese and Turkish or is it others as well? No, there are others. There are definitely brothers from subcontinent, from India, from the Pakistan, Bangladesh, the, the Malaysians. Yeah. Um, if you only focus on Muslims, there are African communities there as well. The considerable amount of Africans in here. But again, the, the top probably three or four will be Turkish, Lebanese, Indian, Pakistan, and Bangladeshi communities. I mean, they're, they're the top. But then wow. this list goes on. That's really fascinating because, like, in the UK, the vast, vast majority are subcontinent, like India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. And I think that that obviously, to some extent, influences the whole community because if, like, your majority is from one kind of way of living and thinking and behaving. Whereas I would strongly suspect that Australia actually has a very different vibe because just by nature of the fact that there's other large groups. And yes. I think that probably has an influence. That's really fascinating. It is, it is, it is. I wanted to add one more thing, actually, because I know Maruf mentioned how Canada is so welcoming and you don't feel that racism in here. And the reasons for that, because these countries did not exist a couple of hundred years ago. So these countries, especially Australia, probably established a couple of hundred years ago. And they didn't, don't have that long and rich history like Britain, like Denmark. So that's why everybody here is an immigrant at the end of the day. You know, whether they came earlier than us or we came later than them or after them, we're all immigrants. So that's why, and the locals are the aboriginals. So for that reason, there's not much racism here. You don't feel it. I hear you on that. I hear you. Is there like one big famous Australian Muslim? Like I know obviously in New Zealand, you've got the big Sonny Bill Williams. I think he's up there with for me with Mike Tyson and some of the big kind of Muslim figures, Mesut Ozil maybe. Is there anyone in Australia that you guys or everyone like loves? It's a good question to be honest. Are you asking it in terms of scholars or in terms of the celebrities? <laughs> I know that in terms of scholars you've got people like Sheikh Tawfiq, right? Yeah, Tawfiq Chaudhry. Maybe yeah. others as well. But I'm really asking in terms of celebrities. Like <laughs> well, I don't know how much you follow Australian football, you know, the AFL. We've got the famous player who actually they just won another grand title, the Richmond. And the player is the Basha Huli. He's originally from Lebanon, and actually he's very famous in here. I mean, there are others as well, but Australian football is very popular sport in here. Everybody follows it. So the Basha Huli is definitely one of the great players and well-known athletes in Australia. And there are others as well, definitely. Uh, but that's what came to my mind at the moment. I'll check him out. How do you spell the name? Basha Huli. Oh, yes. he's got a big beard. Yes, he is. So he's very famous and Marshall is very well respected and he's a very big Adawa person himself. He comes and takes part in the Muslim communities to educate the Muslim youth and to nurture that type of people like himself. I'll definitely check him out. Maruf, I know I've been hounding Nadir for the last few minutes on questions. I wanted to like... Yeah, really all good things anyways. They're all good questions. <laughs> I wanted to ask both of you guys a little bit now about... Uzbekistan. I think I've gone on a bit of a spurt over the last like 10 podcasts where I've done someone else from Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan as well. Uzbekistan, who was that? It's two founders of a company called Powery, 
essentially they've got like these data centers very recently came about and they essentially did very well out of the Bitcoin boom and are now alhamdulillah very well set and diversified and doing all sorts of other things. Yeah, there's two brothers out there, one from Kazakhstan, one from Uzbekistan. I don't want to get the names wrong, but Abdurrahim and there's, I can't remember the other one's name. We'll go and listen to one of that postcard. I want to listen to that guy. Interesting. Incredible story that they achieved very, very quickly as well. And I think the business is now worth over 400 million. Wow. And they just did it basically because of they saw the opportunity. They went for it. It made sense. And because Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan has a very cheap electricity, <laughs> that's what made it much, much easier for them. So I guess my question for both of you guys is why did you go out of the country in the first place? And do you have ambitions of going back? Because I know a lot has changed in the last two decades. What is the like the kind of experience as an expat Uzbeki as well? Do Uzbekis kind of look out for each other? And I'd love to hear a bit more about your experience leaving Uzbekistan, your thoughts on Uzbekistan and your experiences outside of Uzbekistan. Now that you want to take this one. <laughs> you want to take it, Maru, first? No, no, it's fine. It's fine. So for me, it was, I went up in 2003. I was studying at one of the most prestigious universities in Uzbekistan. I figured out that, like, the most popular doesn't mean it's the right thing for you. I was studying this world economy and diplomacy. I didn't really enjoy that. I find out that the economy to be much more theoretical. I wanted something to do tangible, I don't know. It was then when I first discovered the computers and I was looking for a place where I can study computers. I figured it must be also Uzbekistan because Uzbekistan at that time, it was much, much way behind when it comes to especially teaching the computer science. So this way I find out there was a grant, there was a study that's being offered in Denmark. That's how I went out from Uzbekistan, I guess. The thoughts on Uzbekistan, what has changed? I think what has changed, I'm not sure if it changed in the last two decades, but I think about three, four years ago, we got a new president, Shavkat Mirziyoyev. If you follow politics, <laughs> I don't usually much do. So we are seeing a lot of positive change so far. And actually, there are some of our friends actually went back. I know a few people, actually, even from Denmark, they went back and now they are in really good positions, like uh, some of them are really high in, in the government as well. They're trying to do make some changes, which is good to see. It used to be dictatorship, right? They say whatever they say. It used to be dictatorship in Uzbekistan. So when the new president came, the other one died, and this one came, I was personally not expecting anything to be changed because the same system, like many other Uzbeks inside or outside, I was kind of surprised by the changes that are being made right now. And it's kind of positive. And alhamdulillah, because when the head of the government tries to do good things, it's always good for the people. And we're also yeah. seeing that Islam is coming back slowly as well. And that's all good to see. Amazing. And do you guys like go back often to Uzbekistan? I went last time last year. So if it's often, I don't know, like maybe another goes every other year. For me, it was every three, four years. I see. What are your thoughts, Nadir? Yeah, I go almost every year or every second year. I try to go. Look, our families are there. My mom, my dad and siblings, all the relatives are there. And I'm the only one probably outside. So I've got four kids. I want to definitely take them back as often as possible, get to know their grandparents and the uncles and the other relatives. But when it comes to Uzbekistan, what's the reason why I leave Uzbekistan? Generally speaking, I come from a working class family. My parents were teachers, 
And if you look into a normal, like Uzbekistan is a developing country. Again, it's a bit hard to establish yourself after graduating university, for example, you just go and start working in some companies or if you're lucky in government places, and then the salary is not as great. And if you just want to go like that, it's hard. So for that reason, a lot of youth, they try to go outside, go overseas, try to earn some money themselves, make money and establish themselves and accumulate some wealth probably and come back and try to do some business. So a lot of people are into business in Uzbekistan. By working, it's a bit hard. That was one of the thoughts that I had like from when I was a child, I would definitely go overseas and try to do the same thing. Otherwise, it's going to be very hard. So that's what I aimed for. And luckily, I had the opportunity like Maruf and after graduating through one of those programs, and then we got lucky, we've been chosen and given the opportunity to go. And, and that's how I left. But definitely, I had the plans to come back. And I still have plans to go back and perhaps leave it a bit more for a longer period and experience the yeah. change. As Maruf said, there has been a very good positive change in the last three, four years with the new government and they're being more transparent, more open with the things they're doing. And we're happy to see that change. And hopefully, even I've got my plans to go back and probably try out. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. I don't really have a sense of how affluent these countries are. The sense I get is that there are some people in Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan who are extremely rich and like there is a lot of frankly i think natural resource money that has come into the country is there a lot of inequality what's the kind of average uzbeki's life like is it compared to the average danish or canadian or australian or british person's life is it lower higher yeah i'd love to hear a bit more about the economic side of things <laughs> <laughs> well, look, if you want, I can take this question because you're going back. I don't want to get into trouble. I can. <laughs> I'm <not going> for it. <laughs> but I need your help, Nader. Like, so what is the average salary right now? Do you know anything about that? Well, I know the teachers get around between two hundred and three hundred dollars, I believe. Yeah, yeah. My sister is also a teacher. She gets about that, right? Like, it sounds like it's a lot less, but presumably the cost of living is a lot less also, as well. Like, that's right. Yeah, in that regard, that's right. So what I would say is that right now, compared to three, four years ago, like even before the change, I think the situation was much worse because, you know, it was a controlled economy and, and the corruption. It was really rough. I wouldn't say it's very easy now. It's still a lot of struggle, but I think it's getting better because the, now the economy is to some extent, it's opening up. And because you see in, in any economy, as you are also economists, that when there's an open economy, when the, you give the people the chance, they will figure it out, which is a matter of time. And I think that's in progress right now. And we see these changes. And of course, there's a huge inequality. Up until now, there's been a lot of abuse and torture as well. But now that part is gone, alhamdulillah. And now the next phase for Uzbekistan should be, I guess, to open up the economy and give... I mean, look, our people, like, as you can see that our people... Are hardworking people. Uzbek people are, have never just sit down and do want money. So as long as you give the like conditions are open and the economy and the things, they will figure it out. Because our people has been always like a merchants. Because if you remember from history, the Silk Road, Uzbekistan been part of it. So they know buying and selling. They're very accustomed with it to it. So I mean, it's just a matter of time, I guess. The things are getting better, and now. A lot of people also. Another thing we have to also mention that Uzbekistan has been more than 90 
or maybe even 100 years under Soviet Union. It's been on purpose, been under a lot of pressure, even ourselves. I don't know about another, but for myself, when I went out, I began to see the things differently than in your inside. So even I have to rediscover, for example, for me, like Islam as well. I didn't understand much, right? Like before you get out, you don't understand much. But now we can see that things in a different way. And that is coming back. Islam is coming back. Even they have started changing from Russian being the main language. Now they're shifting to English being the main language. Uh, and that's the right move. There is nothing to compare, to be honest. <laughs> it will be totally different comparison, I yeah, guess. Yeah. So we are way, way behind. But we are seeing the first fruits of something good coming up. And yeah. we hope we Allah, Allah it, it just becomes that way without uh, going into that's amazing. That's really, really interesting. I've been hearing a lot of positive things as well. I was talking to, maybe you know him, Brother Hondamir. He's in the Islamic Development Bank, very quite active in the Uzbeki and Kazakh community. So, yeah, he was also very optimistic about this whole thing. Guys, I wanted to talk to you about Quran era, right? Because that's an important part of how we first met and also how you guys continue to collaborate. Maybe neither you want to talk to us about how that whole thing came about, what is Quran era? Yeah, I'd love to hear that. Look, they probably I'll start with the one line to introduce what is Quran era. So Quran era is an online platform where Muslim kids learn how to read Quran through engaging activities and stories and all sorts of other things. It's just a platform, it's an online platform that they learn on their own pace. When it comes to history, there's definitely a history of Quran era. So after I came here, I mentioned earlier, I was teaching Quran on Saturdays and Sundays. I always had that passion to learn Quran, and then which Alhamdulillah I did with the scholars. And after that, to teach Quran and to serve Quran. And I was amazed by Quran, given the meaning, it's Arabic, and anything that has to do with the Quran is amazing and mind-blowing. And the way it has affected my life, it kept me spiritual, kept my Iman on high level. And I believe it would do the same if any Muslim child connects with the Quran in the same manner. It would definitely would guarantee, inshallah, with Allah's will, his kind of that straight path for him. So with that in mind, I wanted to share it. I wanted to teach. I wanted to be active. So I was doing it on the side as I was working in business development in some companies. So I was doing it and I could see how the times have changed, the way kids learn these days, the way they behave. A lot of things have changed. But what I've noticed in most of the mosques or madrasas is that the teaching style, it wasn't adequate to our current times. It's not really suitable. And I thought we need to come up with something that's modernized, that's creative, that's more engaging. Because the kids of current time in this digital era, they are into iPads, into gadgets, and they're just too distracted. I was thinking about that. I had my first child in 2000 and 10 but then he turned like four or five in 2015 this is when i actually took on the journey myself so i was thinking how would i engage him i want to give him the best positive experience that he can have with the quran not like by shouting and not by forcing him what i not with sticks (laughs) (laughs) yeah with that in mind i was thinking day and night like how i could do it and with allah's will with his grace again an idea came to my mind to make things easy, interesting, to open his imagination, to introduce the letters by using the, again, animals, the real life objects. And I was looking at the letters, you know, for hours sometimes, I would see what animal this letter can be drawn, and how it can be drawn, and in what shape, how it can be reflected in it. And I tried myself, to be honest, I was sitting, I would draw the Arabic letter in the shape of an animal somehow, and try to come up with a name and 
tell him, look, this animal has a name, is lazy goose, for example, for lamb. And I would say, for example, an ain, I would say, oh, this is a kangaroo, but I have to give a name because that's up with the ain. I said, oh, there's Arab kangaroo. So I would come up with the names and the hungry old, bird, hungry bird, or in you know, a quarry snail. And then again, the quarry snail, the cough has two eyes, snail has two eyes. That's the connection in terms of a shape, in terms of a name. And I saw my son got really engaged into it. Like his motivation level grew. And not only that, he started grasping things that easily. It was memorable. He could see the character and straight away think about the shape and the name. And then the stories that I was coming with and telling him, he would listen. I mean, that effect still is with him. He's now 10 years old. Whenever I say, say stories, he always listens. I mean, I can see that it's from his childhood, telling those stories. And we know how storytelling is important. So this is how it started. So after that, I was teaching again. I thought, look, why not to apply this on a bigger scale in a classroom environment or to other kids? I mean, if it worked with my son, I'm pretty sure it should work with the others. So I actually did got those letters designed by a professional designer. I gave my own sketches. I said, look, I want you to design all these letters in these animals and through collaborating and in working together, we achieved very nice kind of design and names and stuff. And we created some stories, some animations, which I wanted to try in an Islamic madrasa on Saturday. So, and I did it actually. I tested that method and believe it or not, it was so successful, so effective that the kids who were there, the Quran teaching was not the main thing over there. The, the place I was working then was a language school for Turkish kids and the right. Turkish kids, they came from those families which were not very practicing, but the Quran was offered as a side thing. So after they do three hours of Turkish, they would do one and a half hours of Qurans. There was 15 students of different age from five to 14 even. Again, I started it and then I saw the effect that they were very engaged and the kids really loved it. After some time, I had parents come to me. They said, I don't know what you're doing, but my daughter loves this lesson so much, this class, that she doesn't want to leave or miss it. So every week she comes just for this class. And I was like, oh, wow. I mean, that's amazing. And another thing was I noticed how Saturday schools, when they learn a letter, they come after a week, they don't know nothing. Everything is gone from the it's brain. Gone. It's gone. Yeah. You see, we ask, what did you learn last Saturday? They wouldn't remember what they ate yesterday. And I was going to say, I mean, it's very challenging. But when they came, I asked them, what story did we watch last week? They said, oh, we watched a story about, the, for example, the Arab kangaroo. I go, exactly. What letter did we learn? They said, oh, the Ayn, yeah, the Ayn. So they could really trace it back and bring it back from their memory, which was amazing. Anyways, it passed the test. I was now sure that this approach works after testing it in that place. And then I consulted with some other shuyukh. And at that time, I think I spoke with Maruf. I said, look, I had this idea. Probably Maruf should talk about this part. Yeah, Maruf? I think that's involving. That's okay. So another came and he was saying, I have this idea. I would like to do this. And I did a couple of startups. So one of the things we were saying, okay, how unique is going to be? Because we don't want to create another platform just to teach Arabic. And that's when he started like saying, look, I've been thinking about this, like the stories. Even that time you showed me the one simple video you guys did, right? The one or two letters. So yeah. just as a side note that we work with kids, for Muslim kids and animations, what works. And when I saw those animations, like stories, like as Nadir said, one thing he forgot to mention that he actually started teaching when he was in Denmark, right? Like after work, sometimes he would call us like... There were a bunch of guys like Uzbeks and we did pilaf for our national food and we would read Quran. MashaAllah, he was our Quran teacher. I know that I know him from that point of view that he's 
passionate about teaching Quran. And then years later, sometimes we keep it in touch, but years later he came with this idea. When I saw that, at that time we were also doing the Ali Huda, and when I saw that, I said, wow, this is something I have not seen before. This is unique. For example, I have another startup, like we do Ali Huda, and Ali Huda, what we believe in the storytelling. Storytelling is very powerful, like it's in humanity, right? Like this is what we are. We tell stories. And when I saw this like approach, like I said, this is something very interesting. And this is where we first started working together. In the beginning, it was just Nadir asking questions here and there. I tried to help here and there. But then slowly we began to build. But I think maybe this part you can tell Nadir, because I think your approach with how you find designers, developers, that would be, I think your part would be much better in that case. Yeah, I'd love to hear that. Also, I just want to ask, can you download this at the moment on the internet or online? It's so huge. You don't want to download it. You just want to go and create an account there. Because there are a lot of animations there. There are a lot of things should be calculated online. So it's like a software as a service. Okay, so it's like a website, is it? Yeah, it's a web it's app a at the moment. Yeah, web app. Yes, web at the moment. I see. So at the moment, it's not like a mobile app. Oh, I see. Not okay, yet. so it's like a not yet. It is definitely. Coming. Hopefully, we are raising funds. <laughs> That's one of the reasons <laughs> to do know. the mobile app. I'm excited about this to learn how you went about building it. Sure. Now, do you want to mention like how you started the development design process? Yeah. Again, once we spoke with Maruf, I was very sure. I was very confident that this will work. I had this in mind. Whatever it takes, I will definitely develop this and at least help the community. I know it helps. I know it works. I know it has passed the test. And again, through consulting with the Shuyuk, we got the green light. And then that was the first milestone. So we started working on the other animations about the structure of it and consulted with those teachers, the primary teachers who teach English to those kids who are aged five, six years old, what resources they use. So we had to understand how to make it really effective because we know that the kids who are young, they don't have long attention span. They get distracted easily. So they want that modernized approach to learn so that they don't get bored. So that we need to keep them interactive. It wasn't just the creativity than storytelling. It was more like you have to make it in small chunks, use kind of an engaging idea. And this is how the learning path came here. So if you look at the Kranira program, the learning path is made with continents. So there are five continents, which are like modules. And each continent, for example, the Asian continent, it has the lessons. And the lessons are as countries. So a child travels through 16 countries, which are 16 lessons, before he completes Asian continent. He has to go to New Zealand, Australia. He has to go to Indonesia, Malaysia. And then we've got the maps. So not only the child learns the Quran or the letters, but also the geography, the landmarks, the you know, interesting facts about the countries. In each country, once they open, there are sets of activities and they're all unlocked. They need to follow the path. The activities are It's a journey. It's a journey. So it's a learning journey, yes. Yeah. So they need to unlock the activities one by one by following that sequenced activities. Yeah, so this is how we came up with these all ideas and try to make it engaging from all sorts of, you know, it wasn't just one thing. Again, we still get comments and feedback from clients and users and subhanAllah, the amount of beautiful and positive feedback we've received is so powerful. It's fantastic. That's what makes us work day and night sometimes, you know, because we yeah. still start up. No, absolutely. You know, JazakAllah khair for all your efforts. Really appreciate it on behalf of the Muslim community. I think we're getting to the age where my sons will need to use it. So definitely we'll be checking it out, inshallah. And I encourage everyone who's listening, who's got kids or even who's got family members who might benefit to check out Quran era. I think it looks like an absolutely fantastic project. And 
inshallah, if you struggle to get your kids to sit down and concentrate on this sort of thing, I think this could be the way forward. Nadir and Maruf, just conscious of the time. So perhaps we should wrap it up here. But it has been truly a pleasure to have both of you on the podcast and learn about your stories and your mission and your efforts. And I wish you all the best, inshallah, in the future. And maybe we'll come back in maybe a year or two's time and you can tell us about Hadith era or something. Ah, definitely, definitely. And the pleasure was ours. It was a pleasure to talk to Brother Ibrahim. Thanks for Thank you very much. Assalamu alaikum. If you got this far, you must have enjoyed the podcast, which means you'll definitely love our other episodes and other content we produce as well, inshallah. Be sure to check out the website, islamicfinanceguru.com, as well as our YouTube channel and social media. Until next time, assalamu alaikum.